I'm reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 18 to 25. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is a credit to you if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. A moment of silence as we center ourselves before God in the presence of his word. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. This first verse of our reading this morning, along with its parallels in some of Paul's letters, is surely one of the most catastrophically misused verses in the New Testament. Because built on these passages, we find the entire theological construction that has allowed Christians to own slaves. From the transatlantic slave trade to apartheid, to the ongoing legacy and reality of racism in Western society, some of the most grievous sins of the so-called Christian world begin here. So what are we to make of such a troubling verse as slaves accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. Part of the difficulty we have is that here in Bloomsbury in 2022, we gather as, as a mixed community in terms of how we hear this passage. Some of us here or listening online are the direct heirs to centuries of racist oppression, whilst others of us have inherited racialized power. But I would want to suggest in different ways perhaps, but for all of us, given that we are a congregation gathered in central London, one of the global cities of our world, 
It is an unavoidable truth that we are the beneficiaries of Western capitalism, which was, of course, itself a system founded in the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade and the wider imperial project of enslavement around the globe. And it's also true that as those who live within Western society, we continue to be part of a society which is maintained by the 21st century equivalents of both the slavery and imperial projects of the last few hundred years. On balance overall and not ignoring the imbalances of power in our own midst, we are the powerful ones in global terms. We may not like this, we may not have asked for it, we may not even realise it, but as people living in this country, the benefits and privileges of our society are predicated on a system of globalised domination, oppression and enslavement. From the factories that make our clothes, to the farmers who harvest our luxury groceries, to the financial systems that keep us solvent, we are all, at least by proxy, slave owners. And if you're anything like me, you probably find that an intensely uncomfortable statement and realisation. We live in a world which forces us to be slave owners. I own slaves, you own slaves, they're not in your house. They're on the other side of the world and you will never know their names, but there are people who are living in enslavement who keep our lives propped up. And so when we read a verse like uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18, and when we read it in the light of the unspeakable evils of the slave industry that it has historically legitimated, it is no surprise that we find this verse 2 to be intensely problematic. However, and I say this recognising that in no way does this let any of us off the hook, I wonder if we have been reading this so far upside down, so to speak. Because 1 Peter 2.18 was not written for slave owners, either modern or ancient. It was written for slaves, for the enslaved. It was not written to either justify or challenge the powerful, but to comfort the weak and the vulnerable. It was not, dare I say it, written for us, but for others. And so if we are going to hear it, we'll need to make the effort to shed ourselves of some of our inherited and internalised privileges and attempt to take a few steps in the shoes of other less privileged, less powerful people. We might simply need for a moment at least to get over our emancipatory impulses. We might need to leave behind for a minute our modern discourse on human rights in order that we can enter instead into the world of the first century where Christians had no power to change either their own social circumstances or the situations of others. 
People often say, why did Paul not work for the abolition of slavery? I just don't think it would have occurred to him that it was possible. Those in the churches of Asia Minor at the end of the first century who were the original recipients of this letter had no option to buy their fairly traded products in the marketplace. They had no way of demanding ethical investment from their bankers or their pension fund providers. They had no political freedoms to make the case for the freedom of others. They had no freedom to research or publish stories that might reframe the narratives of their society. Their lot in life was fixed, usually from birth, and there was very little they could do to change it. Those worshipping in the churches to which 1 Peter was written were either slaves or freemen of the lower classes with possibly a small number of slave owners thrown in for good measure. It's not just one Peter, of course, Paul addresses the responsibilities of slave owners in his letters to Ephesus and Colossae. But in one Peter, he doesn't address the responsibilities of slave owners. One Peter is clearly written to those in churches who are themselves enslaved with no possibility of repeal, including those who were um, enslaved to non-Christian masters, those whose masters were harsh, unjust or violent towards them. This is a letter that is written to a group of people who are very, very unlike us. And we need to remember that in order to hear why what is written is written in the way that it is. And so in the advice to slaves that we find here in 1 Peter, that we find so hard to hear with our modern ears, the author offers them a radical perspective on their plight. To those who are enslaved to just and unjust masters, 1 Peter says, you are already free. Now, this was a revolutionary suggestion. It was something that had the capacity to turn their world upside down. They are slaves, but they are free. His point was that in their willful subordination of themselves to their earthly masters, they became active participants in the socio-political revolution of Jesus, which began with Jesus' own willful subordination to the forces of violence and hatred that took him to his death on the cross. This is the upside down thinking that I was talking about earlier, where powerlessness becomes agency and slavery becomes freedom. And the lesson that I think 1 Peter is attempting to convey was that in Christ, a paradigm shift has taken place in which even the least powerful person receives the capacity to respond in a Christ-like manner to their circumstances, however horrific and disempowering those circumstances might be. 1 Peter says that even a slave can model the example of Christ, who himself, like them, endured suffering and death for doing what is right. Now, I admit it. From my point of view, as someone who has had choice and privilege from my birth to this day, 
This all has the potential to sound like a small crumb of comfort, designed, dare I say it cynically, to keep the workers in their place. And so it has become, because this passage and those like it have been taken from the poor, from the enslaved for whom they were written, and pressed into service of the oppressors. Slaves obey your earthly masters, if said to slaves as a way of aligning them with the suffering of Jesus Christ, has a certain revolutionary emancipatory ring to it. Slaves obey your masters when said by people who want to own slaves. You can see how it changes, can't you? For the person who is utterly powerless, this can remain a revolutionary perspective. Of that, I am sure. The slave who chooses faithfulness to Christ in the face of their suffering is aligned with Christ's own faithfulness in the face of his suffering. And so is joined with Christ in the great project of salvation, which ultimately seeks to disempower and unmask all powers of domination and oppression. And so those who have lived their lives enslaved have found this. And the experience of listening to the people groups who have lived with oppression and slavery uh, shows that this verse can still speak and work in that context. This crucible of suffering and disempowerment smelts away all the layers of nuance and compromise which the rest of us who do not face such persecution manage to surround and cocoon our own discipleship with. The slave who subordinates themselves to the evil powers whilst refusing themselves to do evil speaks of the faithfulness of Christ, which utterly rejects all forms of domination, oppression, cruelty and violence. And so I believe there is no place here for violent or dominant Christianity in any form, because to seek to take power over another is to seek to take power over Christ. If the poor and the vulnerable and the enslaved are where Christ is found, any attempt to perpetuate that enslavement in whatever form is an attempt to take power over Christ. And that is an unchristian thing to do. And this then is a hard message for those of us who have inherited considerable power to hear. The message of 1 Peter may be comforting to those who are powerless, but it is profoundly challenging to those who are powerful, because the situation of the Christian slave is offered as a paradigm for the way all Christians are to live in this world. A few weeks ago now in our first sermon on 1 Peter, when we began this little series, we saw that the central message of this letter is the principle that Christians are called from the world by God, sanctified and transformed by the Spirit, and then sent back into the world as resident aliens and exiles to live as obedience to Jesus Christ. But what does this obedience to Christ look like? Well, says 1 Peter, it looks like slavery. We are all, each of us, from the most powerful to the least, 
calls to realize that we live in a world which is also trying to dominate us, to subjugate us, to bend us to its will. And the world will use coercion if necessary, but is equally happy to buy our allegiance, to pacify us with pleasure and bribe us with benefits. The lesson we need to hear loud and clear from 1 Peter is that all existing social orders, even those regimes established on the constructs of emancipation and human rights, are always only systems of relative justice and injustice, and none of them, not even the most egalitarian of liberal democracies, represents the arrival of the new creation. The American Constitution may be good, but it is not perfection. The unwritten Constitution of the United Kingdom may be good, but it is not the Kingdom of Heaven. And so the lesson we need to learn from the advice to the slaves that 1 Peter offers is that subordination to systems of evil is not in Christ, a call fit either resentfully or happily into a given system. Rather, it is a call to struggle within whatever system we find ourselves to make the world a better place. I was attending the King's College London graduations uh, earlier this week in my role as chaplain there, and uh, the um, head of the college council was doing the handshakes. Yeah, it's a chap called Lord Geit, you may have heard him, he was in the news a little while ago. And he was sat just in, in front of me on the stage as I was trying really hard to not fall asleep in front of a couple of thousand people. Um, and when he came to speak at the end, he reminded everybody of the vision of King's College London, which is to strive to make the world a better place. The world is not what the world should be. I'm reminded of the mission of London citizens, of which we are a part, which is taking the world as it should be and the world as it is, and taking the world as it is a step closer to the world as it should be. I'm reminded of the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We may live in a world where we no longer have personal household slaves. This is a good thing. We live in a much better society now on this one than ancient Rome did. We may no longer live in a world where we have a system of transatlantic slavery. This is a good thing. The world has progressed. But we are not there yet. Slavery is alive and well and living in our society. And I am afraid we are all complicit in it. And one Peter still speaks to our world. The call on us, as it was for those enslaved in the first century, is to live and act as free persons with respect to all existing systems. We cannot afford to internalize the propaganda of our age and think that we're fine in our world. The world offers us a choice, acquiescence or revolution. Do you just go along with it and enjoy the benefits or do you seek the revolution? Well, dare I say, both will break our spirits and consume our souls. The path of Christ is the third way. 
It is the path of obedience to Christ in the face of overwhelming opposition. It is the path that says it is better to die for right than to live for wrong, to stay faithful in the face of all the pressures to conform. And it is this path of obedience that sows the seeds of the kingdom of Christ in this world. A handful of people leaving here this morning, committed to going out there and living as slaves of Christ. That's the seeds of a world transformed, my friends. 1 Peter knows full well that the world will treat such people harshly. He knows that slaves and freemen alike will face opposition if they take seriously their commitment to non-violent resistance to the systems of violence that dominate our world. And so he points his readers to the example of Christ, who, as he puts it in verse 23, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. We who have become slaves of Christ can join Christ in leaving the inaction of justice to God. Because we know that if we take justice into our own hands, we simply become the system we're seeking to undermine. We become in our turn the agents of oppression of others. So what does this mean for us? What are we to do when faced with monstrous injustice? How do we respond to the illegitimate or oppressive regime? What do we say to the cruel master? How can we make the world right? The answer, of course, is that I can't. I can't make this world right. If I take it upon myself to enact justice, I just become the problem. The path of Christ is to trust ourselves to the one who judges justly. And in the light of that, to find freedom from our enslavement to the narratives of redemptive violence that underlie the scripts by which our society keeps acting. When we learn together to do this, we become the new humanity that is in Christ Jesus. And our collective woundedness, our addiction to revenge is healed by the wounds of the one who died for the sins of the world. So what does it mean for us then in our world to live as slaves of Christ? Can we discover in our own lives that we are truly free from the systems and powers that seek to dominate and dictate our daily living, to beat, coerce and cajole us into acquiescence to their whims and desires? What might it mean for us to have the courage to do right and not to count the cost? Can we see that our society's systems of enslavement are every bit as self-evident and immutable as the system of slavery that kept the Roman Empire functioning? And what would it look like for those of us enmeshed in such systems, either as the powerful or the enslaved, to discover that in Christ we are truly free? Can we hear the call on us to live lives of absolute non-violence, of unconditional acceptance of the other, of radical obedience to the path of Christ in all areas of our lives? It may seem that such a thing is beyond us and that we are too compromised, too trapped, too enslaved. It may seem to us that this Christ-like path is dangerous foolishness when taken to this kind of extreme, and so it is, well, dangerous at least. But it is the challenge that 1 Peter dangles before us, telling us, to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. A moment of contemplation and then I'm going to ask Dawn to come up and uh, engage with us in some reflections. Dawn and I were discussing this uh, passage during the week and uh, we thought it might be interesting, we've not got a panel discussion today, but we thought it might be interesting for Dawn and I to have um, a brief conversation in public about this. So this is the unscripted bit. <laughs> yeah, so we were discussing this over lunch and one of my initial reflections is um, when, when does scripture not go far enough? When, does, when, do, when is scripture not enough? Is scripture ever not enough? And I asked a question around the writer of 1 Peter, who is clearly someone who's educated, um, so literate, and how much privilege does this person hold? And I would never presume to speak into the life of someone who was under oppression and try and offer comfort, because I think it would sound hollow. And so is there any critique of this writer that is justified and something that we should reflect on and think about? And because to me, it feels, it does feel deeply problematic to tell someone who is enslaved that they have to respect their master. Um, and yes, there are people of the time, there, are, there is a system that is in place, but we also have a system now and we try to break that system down and to push past it. And just because it's always been that way, it's not an excuse that we use now or shouldn't use now. So why was it okay then? Um, because they were telling stories. Because clearly this writer is writing to people and telling them stories. There are other stories that this writer could tell around justice, around um, well, what is comfort without justice? Um, so these were just some of the thoughts that I had. And you have addressed some of them, obviously, but this, you can't talk about this no. without addressing it no but it um, just for me i wonder like i do ask the question of like when we look at this passage and we're trying to pull something out of it and trying to take like a message out of it how much further should we be pushing it and actually is there is it okay for us to turn around and go this isn't good enough dawn i, I think this is really helpful um that, that you're pushing on this um, I was really aware in, in writing this, and I went through it several times to try and get it right, that um, as somebody who has power and privilege by so many intersections of my own life, I needed to be really careful not to be saying to people whose lives are less powerful than mine that they should put up with their lot. Um, it, kind of the extreme answer would be to say to the person in the sweatshop, uh, on the other side of the world, well, you know, the message to you here is that you should just be a good sweatshop worker. Um, and, and that, that, if you put it in those terms, it, it's clearly massively wrong to, to do that. Um, so trying to get into 1 Peter's mind, why does he say that? Um, we don't know who the author of 1 Peter is. There's a tradition that it's Peter, the disciple of Jesus, but it, it probably isn't in, in the end of things. Um, but it certainly is somebody who's got some education, you know, they're literate, they're writing, they've got some power. Um, and again, who are they to say this to their congregation? Um, and I, I think we've, we've got a point there of, of wanting to highlight we may want to come back and critique this text 
And, you know, for all of my dancing around it in the sermon, trying to help it speak to us, is there a place for saying this text got it wrong? Um, and I, I think there is. Uh, I think we also, though, need to um, bear in mind, so uh, the guy who founded this church, um, Samuel Morton Peter, famous railway builder, and he employed the, uh, the navvies, the Irish people who'd been in, build, in building the canals, and he employed them to work on his uh, building of railways. And by the standards of his day, he was a progressive employer. So he paid people in cash rather than in vouchers, he paid them weekly rather than in arrears, and he organised education for the children of his workers up to the age of 11. Now, these days, we would say that somebody who is expecting the children of his workers to come and work for him at the age of 12, that that's child exploitation. By the standards of his day, that was very progressive. And I think, you know, we would want to say what he did was okay because it was better than what everybody around him was doing, but it is not okay because we, if we do what he did, we're getting it badly wrong. And I wonder if we can take a similar approach to 1 Peter and say, you know, he, what he was trying to do was okay by the standards of his day, but we want to critique it and say he doesn't go nearly far enough. Does that begin to address some of that? I think it does. I think it's, it's one of those things that, I've, for me, it becomes a really deep and important question to ask of all of the passages around justice and who they're speaking to that, that specifically in this case that we're talking to people who are enslaved and which is so beyond like my understanding of what oppression can be like I have like I have intersections I'm a woman I'm queer I have people judge me and have prejudices against me and I have been attacked for those things but I have no clue what it is to be sort of racially discriminated or, or, or enslaved or any of those other things like my experience doesn't go that far enough so I think then it is incumbent upon me as someone who has a ton of inherent privilege to ask these questions deeply and to not let scripture off the hook just because it's scripture and I think that that's again one of the crimes of the church is that we we hold up the bible as God, not just the word of God. And I think that that, for me, one of the challenges that comes out of reading a passage like this is how do I critique this without like, and not be afraid of critiquing it just because it's in the Bible. Dawn, thank you, really helpful reflections. I think we should give you the last word, but thank you for that. Let us pray. Loving God, we express gratitude this morning for your presence in our lives and for the companionship of those whose compassion, endurance, and candor brought us closer to you. Those who welcomed us when we were strangers showed us up when we were weak and gave us glimpses of your boundless love when we were doubtful, timid, or even trembling with fear. For all our weaknesses and failings, invoicing our aspirations, hopes, and concerns, we acknowledge the many heavenly blessings we have received. 
and renew our commitment to share your gifts with the larger, more inclusive, more generous community we are bent on building. Loving God, may we recognize the decent and honorable people, citizens who are law-abiding, who care about their country, as well as other countries, who are upright and supportive of their neighbors, may nevertheless profit and benefit from unjust norms that are deeply ingrained in our political, social and economic system. May we be aware of this condition and may we find the energy and courage to help redress at least some of the imbalances we may have created or perpetuated over time. May we be able, as it has been written, to toil and sweat to make human relations a little more tolerable and slightly more just. Loving God, may we recognize that the highest form of freedom is rooted not in our flesh, but in our soul. While we confront, denounce, and strive to resist any earthly rule that violates human dignity, any regime that sacrifices human beings to worship false gods, may we appreciate that power tends to corrupt and that the temptation to pursue it, seize it, and use it as if we were God is a real and dangerous one. May we be reminded and remind others too that your call is a call to serve, not to dictate or dominate. And that your unsettling message of peace trumps the flawed logic of vengeance and retribution. Loving God, may we recognize that your path is not always easy to follow. That we may drift away from time to time, but that there is an intimate joy and unique beauty in embracing your words whenever we are up to the task. For then, and only then, we can truly break free from the patterns of oppression and self-interest that permeate our society and our mindset. <clears throat> For then, and only then, we are given a chance to escape the comfortable slavery of sin. May we see that nonviolence, properly understood and wisely applied, has the potential to transform the world, 
without letting the forces at play within the world diminish us and toward our will. Amen. Our worship is over, but let us continue our service to the world. And as we leave, let me pray using a blessing that God instructed Moses to teach Aaron, as recorded in the Old Testament. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.